0: AI adds a whole nother dimension where it's going to cut the cost of content creation probably close to zero for many categories of media. The question then becomes, does value and scarcity go away or does value and scarcity move to something else? We've seen again and again through the history of the internet that people like people, that fundamentally human nature will not change and that it matters to people that, for example, with a narrative universe, that other people like that universe, that they're participating in that universe, that they're contributing to it. We see that with video games. We see that with chess. Chess is more popular than ever watching chess on the internet. People don't watch machines play chess, even though they're better at chess. They watch humans play chess. In that world where cost of concentration go to zero, what do people value? And I think a lot of what they value are things like community, human connection. These are things that blockchains are very, very good at facilitating, creating networks around.
1: You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren.
2: Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey, and I'm here with my co-host, Sheila Warren. Don't forget to subscribe, give us a thumbs up, leave a review. You know, we love your feedback. Uh, So share your thoughts with us at at podcast.coindesk.com using the subject line Money Reimagined, and we really do look forward to hearing from you. Tune in every week. In fact, you can get us at Coindesk Podcast Network or find us at Money Reimagined. Feeds on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to get your podcasts. Uh, a little bit of a, a housekeeping announcement for everyone here. So you might've noticed at the beginning, I usually, I think I identify myself as uh, Coindesk's chief content officer. There's been a bit of a change in my role. I'm no longer formally with Coindesk, although uh, by the virtue of me doing this podcast, I am still associated with it, as well as the fact that uh, we're in the middle of discussing you know, a different kind of advisory role for me, that there will have to be more details on that. So yeah, end of an era and uh, some, some interesting developments that I'll you know i have to sort of keep under wraps for now more where that comes from. So, uh, we've got Chris Dixon today. Chris is an American internet entrepreneur investor. He is a general partner. Many of you, I'm sure, would probably know of Chris Dixon. He's a general partner at the venture capital firm, Andreessen Horowitz, otherwise known as A16Z. And he was previously he worked at eBay. He is also the co-founder and former CEO of Hunt. And he has written a tremendous book called Read, Write, Own about the role that blockchains can play in the new uh, era of the Internet. Uh, Sheila, before we bring Chris in, um, any immediate thoughts on, uh, on what Chris has penned?
1: Well, many thoughts. I'll start by just alluding, uh, quickly referring back, Michael, to your news, which is um, the podcast lives on more mightily than ever. <laughs> uh, and we'll be excited for the, um, the news as you can share it as it comes due. And you'll probably hear it here first on our podcast. Uh, As far as the book, it's a quick read. It's a compelling read. It's a very straightforward explanation calling on history. It talks about how this is the next phase of networks and walks through early internet. For folks who aren't familiar with that, I think it's actually very useful background. We've touched on some of that here on our show over the years, uh, but not at any time recently. And so I I really do feel that that kind of context providing is very valuable. He also goes in at the end of the book, and I'm eager to chat with him about this part, about the future, where is this all headed? There's a bit of kind of what came before, before a blockchain even really existed, what came before. Kind of where are we now? Uh, there's some touching on the space I'm currently involved with primarily, which of course is the regulatory and policy space. And then, you know, um, with our Bitcoin, with our blockchain, with our all of these different things. So uh, past, present and future, uh, really quick read, really compelling. And I, I should say for our listeners, many of you we know are not technical experts, are not legal experts. And we appreciate those. You're some of our favorite listeners because uh, we try to make this podcast very accessible to all of you. I think you'll find this book very parsable, very comprehensible, so highly recommend it if you've had questions about kind of things, how did this all emerge, where is it going? I think you'll find this a very um, accessible read to answer some of those questions.
2: Yeah, well, let's just let's bring Chris in. I think, um, Chris, one thing I think that was really interesting was situating this book in the context of where uh, things are in terms of the broader political debate around around blockchains. It is a very good, clear description of really why blockchains matter in this internet era. And I think that's, it's going to be quite a useful tool for advocates of the technology to sort of stand up against you know, the critics. Um, and, and I think one of the framings that I thought was pretty interesting was this casino versus computer idea that you know, there are those in the space working hard to develop this as a computational concept, a network, uh, a, a decentralized computer really, and then those who are sort of seeing it as a place to speculate on tokens and how important that distinction is. Um, can you go into a little bit on that and what were you trying to say with that particular yeah. distinction?
0: Well, thank, thank you both for having me and thanks for the kind words on the book. Yeah, so I mean, you know, a blockchain is a is a software construct, right? It's, it's a generic tool, a new architecture, as I argue, a new a new kind of virtual computer that is useful for for, for various things, and like all technologies. You know, it can be used in, in good ways and bad ways. So, you know, a hammer can be used to destroy things. It can be used to build a house. You know, nuclear energy, obviously, you know, positive and negative uses. Nitrogen is used for explosives and used for fertilizer. And so, the kind of the reason I wanted to write the book was I think there was a lot of attention. There's been a lot of attention paid to some of the negative use cases, specifically, you know, all of the kind of speculation, meme coins. And then, of course, you know, these, these big scandals like FTX. And there's of course been discussion of the positive use cases, although I think a lot of those have been narrower, like focused on Bitcoin, uh, for example. Um, I felt like there was sort of missing a a book for general audiences um, that explained at least sort of my perspective on blockchains as, as really a tech innovation. One of the interesting things about blockchains, you can look at them in many different ways. So there is a sort of a financial lens you can look at it through, but I look at it through a tech lens and I felt like that was missing as the technology has different aspects so have different cultures evolved around it and i call that the kind of casino culture of people speculating and trading and then the computer culture um, which i think is larger than people realize it's not as glamorous but for example it's certainly what we're part of and i think what you know all basically all the entrepreneurs we work with dozens many dozens of companies they're part of kind of the computer movement and i felt like for a bunch of reasons including That it's kind of more complicated and not as you know kind of salacious and sensational or something it hadn't gotten as enough attention and so i thought it was important to acknowledge that the bad stuff exists um but but then to you know Mm -hmm. highlight and discuss the positive aspects
2: yeah, and I think one of the things that was, was compelling to me with that, and I think the, um, the idea that it, it's not as glamorous as one way to put it, I would say it's also yeah. not as noisy, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, the, uh, the sort of speculative thing just sucks all the air out of the room and everyone pays attention to it. But in yeah. fact, as you said, there are a lot of people, and, and I always found that you know, at consensus, for example, our, our annual conference, that you just get a sense of how big the, the actual yeah. participants in the building and everything else around the ecosystem is. And that really, the speculators do just absorb an enormous amount of noise, which is, which is yeah. I think, one of the problems here. The, the other thing I thought that was interesting was um, how it seemed to me that you were addressing sort of some of the methods and the ideas about how you might contain that speculative component to it. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me that the tokenomics, you know, token design was an element of that, right? That like, if you, you ever uh, are just, you know, if, if supply is, is too constrained then maybe you automatically create this very sort of buzzy environment where people are trying to drive up the price, but you're not getting much in terms of utility or spreading its ecosystem. On the other hand, if you just throw too many tokens out there, then ultimately you don't actually have the incentive system to build it. So that seems like a really difficult balancing act, but nonetheless, yeah. can you talk about it a little bit in terms of yeah. how it fits in with this idea?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I used to, and I've been in the space now for 10 years since we invested in Coinbase and, you know, some other early venture investments. And I used to kind of naive, maybe naively think that the computer versus casino would work itself all out and that eventually over time, the computer folks would just grow and dominate. <laughs> um, and I've now evolved my thinking on that. Um, and, and I would say in two aspects, one is what you, what you allude to, Michael, which is I think that the products have to be designed very thoughtfully and carefully and specifically, as, as you mentioned, sort of the token design and things around that to avoid an over-financialized mercenary culture evolving around a project. And then secondly, you know, which I'm sure we'll talk about as the policy side, I've come to think that we just, I mean, you know, the, it the, for me policy is not just sort of a reactive thing that we're we're saying like I'm definitely not in the nope don't regulate this camp. I think that regulation is necessary for a bunch of reasons including to dampen the financial kind of mercenary side of things. And and that, you know, I guess I came a little bit from the tech mindset of prior eras where, you know, you sort of saw regulation as a nuisance, but over time and, you know, I'd say over the last five years, we've been calling for regulatory solutions. um, I've come to believe it's necessary to tamp that down because like, it's just too easy to take shortcuts. You know, it's, it's just hard to say to somebody, let's build an incentive system that, that develops a product over five to 10 years if there are shortcuts. Um, and so, for example, I think a very important policy lever is um, lockups, long term lockups to force long time horizons on people. We could talk more about the specifics there. But so I think there's both product and policy uh, uh, mechanisms I'm, I'm that are sure. required to, damp- uh, to dampen that.
2: I'm excited to share with you that our biggest fight. Reclaiming Liberty, Humanity, and Dignity in the Digital Age, a book I co-authored with Project Liberty founder Frank McCourt, will be released on March 12 and is now available for pre-order. Our biggest fight is a manifesto on the need to fix a severely broken internet with a set of workable solutions for all of us to follow. It's a hopeful book, exploring the big opportunities for innovation and prosperity that technology can bring if it's designed with humans in mind but it's also an urgent call to action. We must get this right for society now, before it's too late. Find the link to the book in the show notes. Global crypto regulation, the disruptive power of AI, the rise of tokenization, Consensus is the one event where experts in digital assets, blockchain, and related topics convene to talk about the ideas shaping our digital future. Join developers, investors, founders, brands, policymakers, and plenty more in Austin, Texas from May 29 to 31. The 10th annual Consensus is curated by Coindesk to feature the industry's most sought-after speakers, unparalleled networking opportunities, and unforgettable experiences. Take 15% off registration with the code MRP15. Register now at consensus.coindesk.com.
1: It's interesting. I actually say often that one of the original sins, if you will, of our entire space is that Bitcoin came first and and Mm -hmm. the entire narrative around Bitcoin was very much one about an alternative to money and currency. And so that really pushed the frame of regulators and policymakers. First of all, it pushed us to the financial regulators very Mm -hmm. early, which is not where I think this should have started personally, Mm -hmm. but unwinding that has proven to be very challenging. And I think to the point you're kind of alluding to, subsequent um, people have taken advantage of some of that, right? For sure. And so some of the subsequent harms that have happened that are well-documented, I think only gave more fuel to that fire. And I personally got into the space very much from the data side. And really, I saw blockchain technologies, and I still see them more as an answer to big tech and to kind of web two than to the banks, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's always kind of been how I've seen it. And unfortunately, those things are a little bit oppositional, or at least how they're framed in Washington is a bit oppositional. If you regulate something like a bank, you're not regulating it like a tech company. And those are very different things. And the strictest regulations we have are, of course, on you know healthcare and on finances. <laughs> So you get stuck in a frame that I think is prone to what I would call over-regulation in our space, though, of course, I think is is well-known. I agree with you completely that regulation is needed and was needed even before some of these harms manifested. But I'm curious, because another frame that's been used is if we had wound up more in the big tech space, right, rather than in the banks originally, one of the hammers, the regulatory hammers or policy hammers that's been used to kind of battle big tech is one of antitrust. Mm-hmm. This idea that, you know, can you get too big? Is there not enough competition, et cetera? And I'm curious how you think about that in the context of decentralized technologies and the blockchain and all of that, because it is an argument that is levied at, I think, uh, some of the bigger actors in this space. And they are quite big uh, to you know, today. Yeah, saying,
0: I mean, so on the antitrust, I mean, I guess a couple things. Like one, you know, the if you look at just empirically, what are the kind of dominant internet services like the antitrust that mattered happened a decade plus ago right it was google buying youtube it was facebook buying instagram um at the time those i don't i don't believe those were seriously challenged by antitrust regulators um in fact they were i remember i remember vividly tweeting something about how there was a brilliant acquisition by instagram and getting made fun of like it's just the nature of these things that when they actually matter they're not they're usually dismissed um so, okay. you know, and so, so it was blocking Figma and Activision, right. you know, I know, I know that Activision went through, but like the, the things that have been challenged or Facebook's, you know, acquisition of a VR product, like these to me, frankly, are sideshows. Um, they're not, it's not going to matter now um, because the, the things that mattered already happened. Um, maybe you could wind back the clock. I don't know if there's serious proposals to do this, of like break up the big companies. I don't think that like, look, if you break up Instagram from Facebook, the the thing that makes those those services so sticky is the network effects. Mm -hmm. And the network effects exist slightly somewhat across networks, across Instagram and Facebook, but not that much. So I'm not even sure that's going to matter that much. I think a more interesting regulatory proposals are things around data interoperability. So requiring people to be allowed to move their, you know, maybe their username and their following from one network to another. now, The nuances there, like I think we just saw with the Apple Epic decision, like there's a million ways these big companies can can basically subvert any of those efforts by putting up big warning screens and other kinds of friction in the product. So uh, you know, and I don't know of any serious efforts to to like move along on those regulatory proposals. So I think if you just look at the status quo, like basically there's some sideshow stuff happening with like Figma and Adobe, but there's no real. uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll see with this if there's a DOJ action against Apple. But even then, I just these things are so lagging. Um, maybe yeah. you know, if you look at the Microsoft case, maybe the consent decree put enough restrictions that they took their eye off the ball on mobile. I think that's not really what happened. They took their off to the ball for other reasons. but so you know, <laughs> I, I don't know I just don't, I, yeah I just don't yeah. see any actual things happening with momentum on that yeah. front that make me think that any of the consolidation that's happening with big tech is going to be rolled back. I mean, the top five tech companies are now 50% of the NASDAQ 100, double from what they were a decade ago. I don't, you know, AI is going to accelerate that. I I think we're on a trajectory outside of new innovation like blockchains. I think we're on a trajectory pretty clearly to have an internet of three to five companies.
1: What I think is so interesting about that is that antitrust kind of accepts the premise. It accepts the premise that big giant corporate structures are going to get bigger, bigger, bigger. But actually. What we're talking about in our ecosystem just flips that. Antitrust is not going to be relevant when users mm-hmm. are empowered in these systems. And to your point about data ownership, that is key. One of the reasons that we have this consolidation is because the data ownership has made things like entry into AI. Like, how do you see mm-hmm. though a model if you can't, if you have to acquire the data? If you already have it, it becomes pretty easy. And so it's not a surprise. That we see the big name tech companies being the ones who are kind of moving and gate or either organically from, you know, in, in an entrepreneurship manner or through acquisitions or models or partnerships or whatever it is into some of those spaces. And so to me, there's a the more fundamental question we have to ask, which is if we are looking to depose big tech, the better answer is how do we empower, how do we interrogate the power structures that have arisen around big tech? And Personally, the reason I remain so committed to this thesis is one of the best ways, if not the only kind of real way that I see is network governance via something like a blockchain and blockchain architecture. But I'm curious to get your talk about this quite a bit in the book, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah. Well, specifically, so like to, to your point, like why do these big companies have an advantage? Like what are the advantages to scale on the internet? And they, you know, specific, most of them are network effects, right? It's the fact that, that the services become more valuable as more people use them, and then users get locked in. And, you know, and the reason, for example, you mentioned data, the reason that these companies have so much power with respect to your data, I just got five minutes ago, a privacy policy update to my Reddit account. I didn't approve it. Like, I don't know, you know, like what it is, you know, they just, they unilaterally control all the data rights. And the reason they control that is a big part of it is you have no power. You can't switch, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's exactly, of course, you know, and this, I walked through in detail in my book, um, how that mechanism works. but. This is exactly what a blockchain enables right as you can build for example there are new social networks like farcaster being built on blockchains where the key feature is that the user can can exit the user can if the user doesn't like the software provider right the the network is independent of the software providers and so they can switch to another software provider you know if they don't like how twitter's behaving they can switch to facebook but very importantly critically keep their keep their identity and keep their audience and that that you know enabling that one thing that that ability for the user to switch um, shifts the balance of power and suddenly gives them leverage. And if you don't like the change to your data policy, you can you can you know vote against it, quote unquote, by leaving. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a very credible working mechanism. We have live services that do this today um, that that shift that balance of power. So to me, like I, I'm not anti again, I'm pro regulation and I think certain smart uh, regulation that reigns in incumbents can be helpful. Um, but I just don't see serious momentum in that direction. Whereas I do see a very, you know, through blockchains, a very credible technology that offers an alternative. And yes, it's an uphill battle, and they're incumbents, and they have inertia, and all of the other advantages that they have. But you know, we we should at least let entrepreneurs do what they're good at and and take a you know a serious shot at it. Um, which is unfortunately, as you know, Sheila, like the challenge that we're having on the policy uh-huh. side is that uh, there's this there's this great irony right now, which is that the very people worried about the power of big tech are also the ones um, that are, that, that are um, you know basically trying to shut down the alternatives like blockchains. I
2: mean, th- this is a topic that's near and dear to, to my heart. Uh, I, I, this is, a, this is a, uh, an episode about your book, not mine, but I'm going to shamelessly show sure. my own in the middle of this just because sure. it is relevant to this conversation, Chris. And we ended up in our book coming out next month, looking at that data control component of it. And I think one of the things that, that I felt reading yours is that I'm that balanced. We're less optimistic than you, but it felt like you seemed confident that this, this sort of this pathway, this decentralized uh, blockchain protocol approach would kind of organically, organically emerge maybe, but the, the, that we would get there. And I, I think one of the, the tests of this is going to be this AI moment because, you know, it does accelerate. Um, and, and clearly, and you noted in your book, like the biggest investors in this space right now those who own the data, that, 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 that's, that's already you know, an advantage for them because they've mm-hmm. got the data to train their, their models on. And, and what worries me is that you know, we have to move now because if we don't, that, that lead, that advantage, that pole position is just going to just push them even further ahead and it will be too late and we will end mm-hmm. up with a, with a three-company internet that you were alluding to before. So, I mean, and yet, you read your book and it's like, wow, this is the way, right? Because I think one of the things that I thought was really compelling was this this idea about the take rate and how if you then, if you just expand the the distribution more widely of the revenues, you are going to unlock all this creative energy and innovation that's otherwise being consumed by these things. So it's a very compelling economic argument for why everybody should do this. But these guys are incumbents. They've got enormous political power and um, they have every interest, I would argue, in dismissing your argument by saying these crazy blockchain, crypto, casino yep. people don't listen to them. So what gives you optimism? I mean, do you, do you feel as if, again, we can get to regulation again in a minute, but like, maybe it's not that, but what about the general public? Do you feel as if, again, your book is going to be very useful in this regard, but do you feel as if there is actually an awareness out there? You talk to businesses, you talk to corporates, you talk to all sorts of folks, are they getting it?
0: I think that we got set back a lot by FTX and all this stuff two years ago from a PR point of view, in my experience in tech is that in the end, it's all product driven. You can, you know, people talked about AI for 80 years and then they saw ChatGPT, and it changed overnight. What makes me optimistic partly is I just think uh, one or two breakout products can completely change the narrative. Um, and I think there are a bunch of breakout product, like possible breakout products sort of in the pipeline, you know, just, just in my day job, seeing what's being built. And to your point on the economics, like I think the like in some ways the book I talk about other topics, but really the kind of the core of it is economics, um, and I think that's a very important point. So with respect to social networking, for example, I think it would be easy to say you're being naive. These social networks are so dominant they can never be displaced. On the flip side, look, they made 150 billion in revenue last year, um, and that I, I would argue that revenue is very vulnerable um, because it's money that that they're basically siphoning from the network into the center from the edges. So the creators, the entrepreneurs, the people building on the network in a, in a protocol architecture like RSS or email or the web would be receiving that money because of the way they've built these systems as centralized and owned by these companies. company is siphoning all that money away. Um, but you know, if you can build a social network where these creators suddenly have 100% of the revenue instead of 0%, um, that can be a very compelling economic proposition. And I think you know, done right could spread quite quickly. So I think it's all about show, not tell. Like, obviously my book is tell and, you know, I'm targeting obviously people like entrepreneurs and other influential people. But ultimately I think it comes down to people building these products. And I think if we can build products that really just have a dramatically more compelling, uh, economic proposition specifically, I just think economic, the reason I say economics, I just think that's the thing that will, you know, just from a market adoption point of view, I just think that's going to be like, I agree with. I probably agree with everything you both are going to say around data privacy. Mm-hmm. I think it's a harder itch to a to an average creator or entrepreneur or consumer to talk about that uh, as a as a personal incentive, right? I think economics. Just I don't know. Maybe I'm just sort yeah. of you know uh, fundamentally. I think people. Well, we we do go to into your, economics yeah. as well. I yeah. think you know. Well,
1: look. I mean, I've got yeah. a my daughter's classmate wants to be a TikTok influencer when she grows yeah. up, which I find horrifying on multiple levels. But there's a, there's a question there, which yeah. is. How do you feel about demographics in this, right? So when the internet first kind of really exploded into being, you know, there wasn't necessarily this concept of I can go on the internet and say a thing Mm -hmm. and and do whatnot around this. And I remember very well, the the initial rise of bloggers and people telling their story out there and all that kind of thing. Monetizing that took time. It happened over time. Now, that is, to my chagrin, a very viable TikTok influencer is a viable Mm -hmm. career path for this fifth grader, right? So, do you feel that there's going to be more understanding of the economics of how this works right now? You call it the attract extract model. Yeah. Which is exactly right. Maybe you can say a little bit about that for our listeners. Yeah. Uh, but you know, do you think there's going to be a lot of pressure to say no? Why on earth would I go and give my mo- the monetization of my content, give that over to a place where I can't, you know, take that and control it and have more power in that system? Do you think there's a demographic element to that, or do you think it's it's yeah. that the models will erode naturally on their on their own? these alternatives become more viable
0: yeah so just to to, so the attract extract cycle just for those uh who haven't read the book the I I argue that kind of corporate-owned networks like TikTok and Twitter follow a predictable pattern where when they start off they're kind of being very friendly to users and creators and they're sharing money and they're being transparent about their algorithms and then over time the incentive switch as they grow and their growth kind of slows they have an incentive to kind of basically extract more money out of the network and the money flowing through it um i you know i would argue sheila that like i think just anecdotally for example you talk to creators on tiktok i think a lot of them are now aware that that for example um that at the beginning their their following follower count shot up and then over time like tiktok very deliberately so what happened with tiktok specifically right they had a few influencers that went to like 100 million followers and then they had basically supplier risk like they didn't want to have dependency on 10 influencers who could go and cut a deal with YouTube or something. Yeah. And so they, they turn the dials and they do this all the time um, to make sure they kind of diversify their, you know, their creators. And so they would let a whole bunch of smaller creators get to a million and kind of dial down the 100 million. Yeah. And I think enough of this has happened. I mean, look, I think you see it in like the switch to Substack as an example, like yeah. a bunch of people fleeing kind of to the open web. Substack, of course, is built on email. Um, Patreon is similar in that it's sort of fleeing from YouTube and having a direct relationship with your audience. Through the web. So I think you see kind of a growing awareness as people, frankly, just see how this plays out. You know, it takes time to see how these kind of big forces play out um, and they get more sophisticated about it. And so I do think over time, people will learn this and get sophisticated. You see it in AI now, like it used to be that 10 years ago, anytime there was a new platform, all the developers sort of just naively ran in and, and built their livelihoods on the new platform you already see now people more sophisticated, like, should I be building on this platform? It's slow, but people eventually figure these things out. And remember, like, it maybe sounds grandiose, but like we're 30 years into the development of the internet, and we're probably sub 10 years into modern social media. I know that obviously these sites were created 15, 20 years ago, but really they didn't go mainstream Mm -hmm. in serious numbers until the last decade. So we're very, very early in this process. Um, And I think there's a lot of room for experimentation and new models and, and evolution.
1: So you've been a big proponent of NFTs on fungible tokens mm-hmm. as a method or mechanism, one, one way essentially for creators to um, provide ownership around content, et cetera. And could you just speak to that? Because um, I, I agree with you. And I think that NFTs went through their first sort of hype cycle and then you know people didn't talk about them as much. And now we're starting to see them come back into, I don't know if Vogue is the right word, but you know they're more popular now when I sort of see a new rise starting there. And I, I wonder if you could just comment on mm-hmm. that connected to what we were just talking about.
0: Yeah, well, a lot of times when new technology comes out, people, it's easy to conflate technology itself with a specific instantiation of the technology. So people sort of think of NFTs as just personal avatars and, you know, the few projects that they associate with it and maybe, you know, rich people spending $100,000 on a picture and things. It's a very expansive, generic NFT is a container of ownership. And it can, that ownership could represent uh, your identity on a social network. It could re- represent your audience. It could represent a piece of art as people have seen. It could represent a real world asset. It's just a digital representation, the atomic unit of ownership, right? And so it's a very general uh, video game asset, virtual goods. And so we're only i think at the very early phases of seeing entrepreneurs and technologists explore what's possible with this technology so i remember i mean the standard for nfts nft was was finalized in 2020 i mean it's a four-year-old technology like i think we're really jumping to conclusions when people get kind of cynical about it i think also i would argue in an age of ai that they become even more important because in an age of ai you're gonna you know it's gonna be you push a button and you can create a Marvel movie from video, but how do you build an audience? How do you get people to care about it? How do you build a community around it? I don't think the human connection will go away that people care about around art and creativity. And one way to look at NFT is it's a, it's a way to create a, a community of, of fans around, around some you know idea or story or a piece of art or collection of art um, so I don't know. So I just think it's so early and people are just at the beginning stages of exploring it. And it's been conflated with specific instances of uses of NFTs that that, that are kind of accidental and not essential to what, what
2: NFTs are. We should, of course, because I always forget now that we are on camera w- once again, Sheila, these days. That's we, got, right. we had a period there, we were just in audio. So we forget about these things, but of course we do need to show the cover. I'm sure that it will be included in the um, in the show notes as well, but there's the book. You know, read, write your own, building the next year of the internet, Chris Dixon, an, an excellent read. I, I actually thought that something you just alluded to then, Chris, and, you know, you have a section toward the end of the book there where you go through use cases. I thought it was fascinating, this idea that is leaning into fandoms, right? I've, I've always mm-hmm. thought that, that we had this, you know, you look at the litigious nature of the entertainment industry through much of the 20th century. Um, I remember, you know, Naomi Klein's tremendous book uh, um, uh, about this, where she talked about, you know, Disney suing, um, you know, children's uh, actors who turn up at birthday parties dressed as Snow White, right? And just the sort of absurd way in which they're just like, why why wouldn't you look after your fans, right? These kids, you're going to cultivate that relationship, you grow that, And and it's interesting to see how the culture, even without things like NFTs, has shifted, right? I mean, you go to Comic Con or somewhere and um, you know, there's now like Marvel and DC Comics have an entire section there that's dedicated to all the fan art that gets developed and so forth. But but thinking of it as a business model, as a way to actually leverage and grow, it's it, it's it's still quite a ways off, right? I mean, this this mindset is, and it's so it's just the antithesis, it's a completely different way of thinking about things. Yeah. And yet, you know, a, a friend of mine who was working on some of these ideas was sort of saying, look, when we get to build you know, these massive VR world, they're just, they're going to be all consuming. You're just not going to have enough creative capacity really in-house. You know, you, the scalability of a, of, a, of a narrow corporate creator model is actually really limited. You're going to need all these fans in some way. So, so what, do, you, do you see this happening inevitably? I mean, do you see yeah. this kind of like collective creative process happening? And how does, it, how does it save us? I suppose is what I'd like to ask, right? Because you also make the point about in an AI world, we might just be the, yeah. the the worst outcome is we are just the grunts clicking on those capture images, trying to sort of prove the, prove the model, when in fact, we could be part of the creative process generally.
0: Yeah, so there's a couple, couple things I'll say there. One is, I think, so I have a chapter in the book about kind of comparing the video game industry to the music industry. And the point I'm making is if you just look at all of the, I, I guess I would say that I think the video game industry is far ahead of other media industries in how they think about the internet and specifically the video game industry over the last 25 years transitioned from a model of where they where you know you charge for a game you charge $50 for a game and it's all kind of done in a traditional media model if somebody copies some of it you sue them um, to a model the dominant model today where the game is free you encourage people to copy the game through you know stream the game uh copy parts of it talk about it share you know mod it and and then you charge for kind of complementary layer of of goods which is the you know, virtual goods. So you, in Fortnite, you buy a dance move. And effectively what you're buying, what you're really selling in that case is community, your status in the community, right? They're, they're buying a fancy outfit because their friends are playing and they want to show off the fancy outfit. And so what the video game industry realized was that the best way to kind of take advantage of the internet was to let it do what it wants to do, which is copy and share and all the other things the internet is good at, and then monetize a different layer of it, which is sort of the, the status, you know, st- status among human communities, right? And the result of that is the video game industry went from twenty billion in revenue to one hundred eighty billion in revenue, while the music industry, in my case study, stayed flat over that same period, and you know all the other industries of media industries have either you know stayed flat or shrunk. Um, and I and but I it's, would argue it's, that's it's a compelling why. I mean, just, just, yeah. yeah, it's a really. I mean, it's just it's sort of number. a I I mean, honestly, I, I I like that chapter a lot because it's sort of just a slam dunk argument when you look at yeah. the numbers. Like, it's very clear that that leaning into what the internet is good at. Um, as the video game industry uniquely among media industries has done, is a very good strategy. And so I mean, it's, it's,
2: like, it's like you say, say in the book: like, it's like not as if people don't like listening to music or watching yeah, films. The, or supply demand things. and demand hasn't been And in I fact, like music, video games, i like doing all these things.
0: No, no, exactly. I mean, movies, music—they're just as popular, if not more, in many cases yeah. than video games. It's just that video games has has been smarter about running experiments and and embracing what the internet's good at, instead of just being litigious. Like I remember, there were a whole bunch of interesting experiments around music for those who, who are in tech would know like Turntable FM was a really cool kind of little mini virtual world where you you use music and had these avatars. And there, there's been a long history in venture capital trying to fund music related startups, and they all just get shut down and sued. Um, and so people have given up. Like it's not even in my business in venture capital, you don't even take music pitches anymore because you just know it's going to get sued and no one does it. Um, so, you know, they just basically shut down innovation. And so, you know, the, the kind of one thing NFTs let you do is NFTs are essentially virtual goods that you can use in, other, in those other areas of media that have been kind of re- refused to um, sort of fully adopt the modern internet, but they can now sort of adopt lessons learned from the video game industry. And that, you know, NFTs are essentially virtual goods for music and books and poetry and everything else. AI adds a whole other dimension where it's going to uh, cut the cost of content creation to probably close to zero for many categories of media. Um, The question then becomes, does, you know, is, does value and scarcity go away or does value and scarcity move to something else? And I would argue, like we've seen again and again through the history of the internet that that people like people, that fundamentally, you know, humans are not going to, human nature will not change and that it matters to people that for example, with a narrative universe, as you were describing, Michael, like that other people like that universe, that they're participating in that universe, that they're contributing to it. We see that with video games. We see that with chess. Chess is more popular than ever, watching chess on the internet. People don't watch machines play chess, even though they're better at chess. They watch humans play chess, right? Yeah. And so I think in that, I think one interesting thing to think about, I think about sort of on the weekends or something, is in that world where content creation goes to, cost of content creation go to zero, what do people value? And I think a lot of what they value are, are things like community, yeah. human connection. And these are, these are things that, that you know, as described in the book, that blockchains are very, very good at facilitating and yeah. creating networks around. I think, yeah. you know, I, I think it's an opportunity. In the next decade, if we think about it correctly, we could see these two technologies, AI and blockchains, evolve in tandem and in ways that complement each other.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. So something I think about a lot is just the idea of micro communities. And so idea that, you know, previously to get to scale or to be successful, you had to have like a billion users as kind of like your target, right? And you think about your TAM in a kind of linear way. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think these new communities are going to spring up and they're gonna they're gonna, you know, evolve and, and wind down and this and that. And that's all fine. You don't have to have a, a fandom yeah. that's like a billion people. You'd have a fandom that's like a hundred people. And that can be very powerful, especially if there's interconnectivity in between and among different communities. And you as an individual are able to kind of seamlessly move from place to place, or maybe it's metaverse to metaverse, whatever it looks like, in ways that are organic to your needs and that have the ability to evolve as you and the community that you're in kind of dictate. And so I think about this a lot because I think this is the nature of how, as we start to intermediate our online and offline realities even more, and I think some of this is demographic, but I think to the point you made earlier, it's also evolving and you know in, in my generation too. I think we're going to see more of this kind of demand cycle, right to 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 experiment, to try things, to see what works and doesn't work, and to be able to port aspects that did work over into something else that might be stickier because of whatever reason, things we can't even possibly foresee yet. and then the other I think is I I just I I did a a tour in in Davos where this time like my talking point was really you know especially in the policy space we tend to talk about technologies as if they're siloed right there's like blockchain then there's AI then there's you know uh, uh, the metaverse whatever right and actually we have to talk I, I use this I was starving on stage one day and I use this this metaphor of a hamburger you know you can talk about the lettuce and the tomato and this and that and that can be valuable there are challenges and opportunities in each of those tech spaces but ultimately there's an intersectionality that we have to be thinking about and addressing. And I think you do this towards the end of the book in particular, where you're talking about a lot of these concepts, not just blockchain and AI, AI, but also the other ways that identities are going to manifest in the world, including online, and how technology and the intersection of technologies is going to provide a more holistic experience for people. So if you want to talk about that on other technologies that you see maybe coming back into play or how they, uh, in your mind, all kind of, yeah, interoperate.
0: Well, I think about the last, so the last wave I lived through sort of, I remember in 2008 or so, people saying, you know, talk about mobile social cloud with the three buzzwords. Yeah. And, um, a lot of people were like, oh, it's, you know, hype type jargon, et cetera. It turned out to be very true. And to your point, Sheila, like the three mutually reinforced each other. Right. So, so mobile was the, allowed us to go from a couple hundred million computers to billions. Yeah. And, you know, have a supercomputer in your pocket. Social was, you know, people spend two and a half hours a day on social media, like that was sort of the killer app that that drove adoption. And then cloud is the back end infrastructure that allowed this all to exist from a, you know, infrastructure point of view. And I think a similar thing will happen. I think, you know, the stuff happening with VR headsets and sort of spatial computing, metaverse, whatever you want to call it, and just sort of deep, more, more immersion in 3D worlds, video games will continue Um, Obviously, the AI stuff is very important. And then I think the third, I hope, is sort of block is blockchains as a as partly as a countervailing force to the centralization of AI. And, you know, you can do a lot of things with blockchains. You can also do, you know, authenticate that someone's a real person, authenticate that something's a real video. You can build new business models for creative people. There's a whole bunch of ways in which blockchains can, I think, offset some of the some of the negative effects of AI. And so I, in my ideal world, yeah, they kind of all co-evolve. I have a section in the book about the metaverse as well. Like if we have this world of, as, as you were talking about, Michael, of these, these sort of massive 3D worlds, like how are those 3D worlds built and controlled? Are they controlled by one company like Ready Player One? Or are they more like the, like the web was, like a, you know, a bottoms up decentralized network where people are contributing and adding storefronts and, and innovating around it? And these these questions, like we have to figure them out soon because
2: yeah, it's moving very quickly. It it is, and and that's actually where it leads me to the question I want to ask because so, you know AI is just such an important. I mean, to, to Sheila's point, this intersectionality. I think it's actually one of the big opportunities for blockchains because I don't know how on earth, other than sort of trusting, you know, OpenAI or trusting, you know, uh, Microsoft or Google or, or whomever to, you know tell us that, yes, we have protected all of this and we know, you know, we're looking after our sources and so forth. We need some form of independent reckoning of the provenance of where the data, where the, where the you know, the creative inputs are coming from into this space. So you, you talk about that a bit. I thought it was very interesting about, you know, h- how you could use a blockchain to, you know, validate, have an attribution system because we've got, you know, it's, it's not the same old world where it's just, okay, I'm doing a a derivative piece of art based on a Warhol. This is, it's, it is still using all of those creators' works, but it's sort of a, a, a mishmash and amalgamate, And the courts are gonna to have to figure that out. But this idea that you come up with how, I think it's gonna read the line here, you say, um, AI companies would face a binary choice, except the mm. terms of the collective group or not, instead of using their leverage against individual creators. It's the same reason labor unions bargain collectively with employers, there's strength in numbers. And, and I just find that a very interesting idea that in this moment when, you know, I think one of the pushbacks we're going to get to that we should have rights to our data um, is that, you know what, on your own, your data is not worth much, right? Mm. It, it's, it's not going to be very, very valuable unless it can be aggregated. And so too bad. But the idea that we could form these kind of unions, these collective undertakings and, and forge uh, a structure in which you know, they're going to have to bargain and, and negotiate with this. Otherwise, they're not going to have the power to do so really potentially flips it. And this comparison to unions or cooperatives is very interesting. Do you see those sorts of organizations forming here? Is that part of what this future looks like?
0: I mean, I think that's, you know, And by the way, that's one of the frustrating things with the political framing that sort of blockchains are right wing is that, you know, you can you, they're, they're generic software yeah. constructs and you can use them. And that, that's an example of where you use one in more of a collectivist, maybe left wing mm-hmm. way. Um, a, lot, a lot of, I would argue, a lot of, you know, economics of the internet are driven by, uh, you know, the fact that you have very concentrated search engine, you know, you have one or two search engines that dominate, a few social networks that dominate, and then you have millions of content providers, right, who are the people that create the content that's using the social right. networks, Used millions and the, billions, yes. and that they have no leverage, yeah, yeah, and they don't collectively bargain. And we saw that, you know, with the way that, for example, in search engines, money flows, is that the websites that create the content get very little of the money. Um, and so an, an obvious solution to that is to get together and collectively bargain. And a blockchain turns out to be, you know, you could argue and through one lens, a blockchain is a device for collectively bargaining, right? Um, it's for a bunch of people to get together and and set terms and negotiate with these centralized counterparties. And so that, that's kind of what I'm alluding to. And look, like, I think you could see like early DAOs, for example, as essentially, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's out DAOs out there that let people kind of collect their data. Artists come, come together and you know, they could do There's no reason, for example, you can't have a DAO that also has legal rights and copyright. So you can contribute your art to a DAO and have certain terms of licensing. And then the DAO negotiates on your behalf. So I think you're seeing kind of uh, emergent examples of this. It's very early, but I think it's a very powerful way to potentially counterbalance the power of these centralized platforms.
1: What do you think, Chris, is the single biggest widely believed myth about blockchains that is just not true?
0: Uh, wow, there's a lot of. I mean, there's. I, <laughs> so I talk about some it. of them. I mean, the fact that like crypto is for hiding stuff, of course, is just <laughs> right, pretty much right. the opposite of the truth, right? Which is they're it's like terrible methods no, for doing you know, illicit finance and things like that. Yeah. Um, the energy stuff, you know, is of course true of proof of work. You can debate it about clean energy and things, but essentially, it does not. It's not true about proof of stake, which is how Ethereum mm-hmm. now is is designed, and I think most of the blockchains that we're involved with. So there, there's those kinds of myths. I mean, there's the casino myth of just like the only point of speculation. And that these, these, you know, every, I think, I think, uh, Sheila, to your point earlier, because this began with Bitcoin, I think a lot of people anchor on Bitcoin and think it's yeah. all this kind of self-referential value thing where it's like gold or something. Whereas of course, Ethereum has a cash flow model you That's pay right. to use, it's a shared computer. You pay to use, it has a revenue model. Um, it's, you know, software is a very, very plastic, malleable medium, and you can design many different things. And just, unfortunately, a lot of the framing is based on Bitcoin and early projects, Mm -hmm. and it's just not kind of correct. My, my optimistic side says that'll get fixed over time. I hope so. Um, just as people, you know, as the, as the technology, you know, kind of just people, more people get experience with it and learn about it, but. There's a lot of myths. There's there's probably more myths around this (laughs) space than any space I've been involved in, any technology category I've been involved with in my career.
1: Isn't that something, right? Well, yeah, I I appreciate so much, I mean, the effort to debunk a lot of that by providing sort of plain language understanding of what is actually happening here, what it's leveraging, how it is improving in some ways upon previous networks, but also calling upon that history uh, really strongly. And there's a through line there that I think you you draw really well on the book, and is really powerful. And then, you know, painting the picture for what this is going to engender and enable is already doing so. But you know, again, it's, it's complicated, like software is plastic, to your point, it's also very, it's hard, it's hard to kind of build. And there's a lot of experiments that are going to happen and fail before you get to that kind of, a sticky product that that really is the revolution that everyone's kind of waiting for, and and I yeah. think we're seeing, to your point, some of that is starting to really bear fruit and come out into the world. Like put, you know, put, come out of the cave into the light, as it were. And as we see more of that, you know, it's not my job to pick winners and losers, but what I have observed over the past you know ten years or so that I've been paying attention to this space is the inevitability of it. And I think you outline that really well in the book. That you know, yes, there are headwinds. Yes, there are challenges. Yes, there are incumbents who are really, really motivated. You know, to not allow this to sort of really um, emerge and really kind of uh, become as sticky as it, as it really should be. But I do think that with other changes happening in society, with other demands, you know, whether it's from creators, whether it's from even from like I think policymakers who are thinking more about opportunity in this space, we're going to see. I think. Uh, that that revolution, and I don't think there's really any other word for it. If you really think about the underlying architecture of the internet and about how we engage with each other and community as being foundationally based on something like this, on this architecture, I think it's really powerful. And I think it's going to create its own challenges that I don't know that any of us can necessarily foresee, but it's certainly, I think, going to be an improvement on some of the problems that we that are very well-documented. And that everyone kind of wants to wave their hands around about, you know, but not embrace, I think to the point you made earlier, one of the most obvious solutions that exists, which is yeah. blockchain architecture.
2: Yep. Uh, on that note, Chris, I know we have to wrap nice and quick here, but like why don't you give us just the last word? You know, what's the one thing that you want people to take away here? The big message? What's the, the call yeah. to action basically? I, I think just what I hope to show through the
0: book is that there's two sides to the coin here. There's, there's 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 the things people are aware of, and then there's another side to it, and that, it, like any technology, we can decide as a society, it, you know, if we want to. What I would argue we should do is maximize the good and minimize the bad, as opposed to sort of banning it or de facto banning it. Um, so that's the main thing. I'm just hope I'm just glad I have a book out there that sh- shows the other side of the story, <laughs> gives people a chance to read that and hear it. Because um, yeah. I don't think they get to hear it enough, and it's just like in a nice simple contained package so yeah i hope people well, well, will Well, congratulations
2: once again it, it is yeah. it is truly a great read i, I thoroughly enjoyed it uh that folks the book is called read write own building the next era of the internet it's been an absolute pleasure chris thank you yeah. for this could have, could have kept going for ages this is such a big big topic i look forward to catching up with you okay you, chris is of course you all should know this a keynote speaker at consensus in may Uh, I'll be back on stage with Chris Dixon uh, to dig further deep into this, so I'm not all that upset that we're we're leaving it here because we can pick up where we left off uh, down in Austin, May 29th, to 31st. So thank you very much, Chris Dixon, for being with us, Sheila Warren, as always. Thank you for being. Thank you both. You're most welcome. Uh, A great co-host. Thank you to our producer, Michelle Musso, for tirelessly pulling all these things together and everybody at Coindesk for, for helping us out here. That's all we have time for for now. Uh, do come back again next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Uh, make sure that if you uh, like to, you can send us a review, give us a thumbs up. Yeah, we really do look forward to your feedback. And um, you know, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week. That's all. Bye.